Well, it's such a joy and a privilege to be back together again and to see some old friends haven't seen in a while and other friends that it's always good to be back reunited with. And what a blessing it is to have the gift of the church, a family in Christ that we can celebrate Him together with. Well, in May of 1968, the 826th Ordnance Company of the Wisconsin Army Reserve was activated for deployment in Vietnam. And this separated my mom, who was four months pregnant with me, from my father, who was sent to Long Bend. And there he was uh, inspecting ammunition facilities, both at the major stations and also at the fire bases that he would helicopter into. And when he could, Dad would write letters to Mom, who was eagerly awaiting, eager to receive, and eager to read news of her loved one who was in harm's way. And sometimes the families. Uh, the letters were to the family, and she had gone to West Texas to stay with her mom and dad and to give birth to me. And when the letters would come, they would gather as a family to hear the news of a loved one that was in harm's way. And uh, actually, we found a few years ago the photo of when I first met my dad. And so that's me, about 10 or 11 months old, with dad who had gotten word that he had had a child, and then later came the word that it was a boy. And then about 10, 11 months later, he was able to meet me. And in God's mercy, he brought him home. And some of y'all have been in that circumstance of being separated from a loved one that was in harm's way. And maybe to be waiting eagerly for word of news of anything of how are they doing? And this is the circumstance of the Philippians when they get word that Paul, their founder, Paul, their spiritual father, Paul, the one that they had heard was in prison in Rome, had sent a letter that Epaphroditus was back. He had come from Paul and he had a letter. And so the family gathered together to meet in a home, likely Lydia's, to all gather around to hear the reading of a letter from a loved one in harm's way. And most of the Philippians would not have been able to read. Most of them would have received this hearing it read aloud, like I'm going to do for us again. So imagine yourself in a room with about this number of people getting a word from a loved one writing to you of God's grace in harmful circumstances and his encouragement to you as his mind is on Christ for you. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And in these opening words, the salutation of Paul's letter, we're going to see three sections. Paul's greeting that is going to remind us of our identity in Christ, how we view ourselves. Paul's thanksgiving 
reminding us of our partnership in the gospel, which is going to tell us how we view one another. And then Paul's prayer, which remind us of our aspirations as Christians or how we should be praying for one another. So let's look at Paul's greeting. The sender is Paul, the apostle who founded the church and who was the spiritual father of many of the name. Just that opening word in the manuscript would have stirred affections because Paul was dear to them and esteemed to them. And even though Timothy was not a co-author of the letter, it's in first person. And when Timothy's referred to, it's in the third person. So it's Paul, not Timothy, writing. But Timothy was with Paul when the church at Philippi was founded. He's with Paul now in Rome. And Paul's going to be sending him back to Philippi. So Timothy has mentioned it well. And bondservants actually refers to slaves. So the word doulos, plural douloi, does not mean servant or bondservant. It means slave. Because what Paul is conveying is that as he views himself and Timothy, they belong to Christ Jesus. They exist to serve Christ Jesus. And there is no shame in belonging to and serving the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Lord of the universe. And this title, Slaves of Jesus Christ, is used by Peter, James, Jude, and John. It's used of the Old Testament of Moses, Joshua, and David, that the great saints were proud to call themselves slaves of God. And it's used of us too. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Every Christian is a slave of Christ. Every Christian belongs to Christ Jesus. Every believer exists to serve Christ Jesus. And that's a noble title. That's a great thing to claim and assert for ourselves. There was a movie in the 70s with Richard Dreyfuss called Whose Life Is It Anyway? about an artist who became paralyzed and basically as he sought the right to take his own life or to expire. That was the theme of the movie. It's, it's my life. It's my body. I should be able to do what I want with it. And that's not the biblical perspective at all. Whose life is it? It's God's life. God gave you that life. He'll hold us accountable for the life he loans us. Whose body is this? It's God's body belongs to God. And so we belong to Christ. We have been created by Lot. We've been redeemed by Christ. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. The recipients are to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now in the Roman Catholic tradition, a saint is a super Christian who has been beatified. But in the Bible, every Christian is a saint because every Christian has been called by the holy God for a holy purpose. They have been consecrated. They have been set aside just like Israel was. Every Christian is a holy brother or sister in Christ. The New Testament refers to saints in Jerusalem, Rome, Ephesus, Colossae, Thessalonica, even Corinth, which is maybe the worst church that Paul had to address. He refers to the saints who are in Corinth. And that wasn't sarcasm. That was who they are in Christ, set aside for a holy purpose. These are in Philippi, a Roman colony in between Istanbul or modern-day, I guess modern-day Istanbul, it used to be Constantinople, if you know the song. And Thessalonica on the main Roman east-west highway. And he includes, for the only time in his letters, two of the church officers. The overseers, who oversee the affairs of the church, the elders. And then the deacons, who serve the church on behalf of the elders. And so Denia Community Church has the same two set of church offices that we see in Philippi and in the New Testament. The day Fred and I are elders, and our job is to oversee the flock of God. 
And then we are served by Dave and Jan Sims and by Teresa Price and Connie Greenwood, who are the deacon and deaconesses who help serve the church so that we can devote ourselves to the word of God and to prayer. And then he gives the blessing that applies to us as well. Grace to you and peace. Now, grace is God's unmerited favor and unconditional blessing. It's the way that a parent looks at a child, the way maybe that a grandparent especially looks at a grandchild, that there's nothing you can do that would separate you from my favor and goodwill, even though as children and sometimes grandchildren we try. <laughs> but there's that favor. You stand in my grace. And this is accompanied by the Hebrew greeting, peace or shalom, which meant both interpersonal peace and harmony and also individual flourishing and thriving and well-being. So Paul combines both a Greek and a Hebrew blessing to convey to them that they have, and he wishes on them, God's unmerited favor, his unconditional God will, their interpersonal harmony, their personal thriving, and then he gives the source of it. From God our Father, he reminds them that they are children of God, the one from whom all blessings flow. So the author John Irving wrote a book called Cider House Rules about a doctor who took in orphans in New England. And as he would put these uh, abandoned or unwanted or orphaned children to bed, he would say, good night, you kings of Maine, you princes of New England. And one of the new boys says, why does he always say that? And another boy says, because he knows we like to hear it. <laughs> but, but it wasn't true. They weren't princes. They weren't kings. But for us, we are children of God. You are a son or daughter of the living God if you are in Christ. You are a prince and a princess. You will reign as a king and queen with Christ on the new earth someday. This is who we are. And then he does something staggering. He has the audacity to add someone to God as the giver of these blessings. How could you say grace and peace from God and then put the word and? It seems incredibly incongruous, right? Because God is the source of all good, all blessing, all peace, all mercy. But we also know that grace and peace come from the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord is applied not to God the Father, but to Jesus the Son. And it's explicitly identified with this Jewish carpenter of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. And this is the twofold source of God's grace, which results in our peace. There is this implied cause and effect relationship here. And in just these opening two verses, we are given six identities that we have in Jesus Christ. That for those who have repented of their sin and embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior, we are slaves of Christ. We belong to Him and we exist to serve Him. And that's a noble calling. Secondly, we are saints of God. We have been set aside by the Holy God for a holy purpose. And we are to live up to that calling as sanctified ones. We're members of local churches. We never find a time where someone comes to Christ and is simply to enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We are part of a body. We are part of a family. We are part of a membership. We are brought into the new covenant community that Christ established when he died for us. We're recipients of God's grace. If you're in Jesus Christ, you stand in God's favor. You can't separate yourself from the love of God in Christ once you're in Christ, no matter what you've done. And we also are recipients of God's peace. We have been reconciled to God. He's not angry at us anymore. Jesus satisfied that for us. 
And that brings peace between us as well. And now we can enjoy interpersonal harmony and we can enjoy personal thriving and well-being because we are children of God. We belong to the household of God. We have been adopted into his family. And then finally, we are all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus. We follow his message, believing what he teaches. We follow his mandates, obeying what he commands. We follow his model, embracing his lifestyle and trying to love like he loved. And we follow his mission to go and share the good news with other sinners that they can be forgiven just like us and that they can be adopted just like us, that we are beggars telling other beggars where they can find food. And after reminding us of that identity, Paul goes on to thank God for the Philippians. Paul gives thanks to his God because every good thing that we experience comes from God. And he gives thanks in all his remembrance of the Philippians. Every time he thinks of the Philippians, he's thankful for them. And especially as he prays for them, it's always with a mind of gratitude. And the reason that he is grateful and the reason that he is joyful for them is that they are his partners in the gospel. That's what participants, their participation in the gospel means. It's the word koinonia that sometimes means fellowship, but here has the idea of a partnership of like-minded people joined together in a common goal with common aspirations, going through struggles and victories together, and that bonds them together because they're achieving things together. And so I remember when we lived in Nebraska, I had a friend named Mike Mills, and we were partners in fishing, so we found some old railroad ties that we bound together, nailed some wood to, painted the words, the SS Sea Serpent, because it sounded cool and had lots of sibilance. And we would go out fishing and rafting. And then we thought we'd make some extra money, and we became partners in a hot dog venture. Because I found out you could buy hot dogs at the grocery store for like a buck, and then you could sell them for 75 cents to kids in the neighborhood, and you could pocket the difference. And I discovered this marvelous thing called profit margin. And we got together on this, and mom provided all the condiments and the buns and the utensils. I didn't compensate her, of course. I was only thinking of the profit. But Mike and I were partners. It was joyful. When Dave was in college, he and a good friend from high school named Rusty decided they were going to make a business out of one of their passions at the time, which was football cards. And so they got rare football cards and mounted them on these beautiful boards, and they were in the football card business. And they dreamed about the day when they would do other business ventures together. But Paul is joyful and thankful for the Philippians because they are gospel partners. They participated in Paul's ministry, in praying, in encouraging, in supporting, in financially contributing to him. He supported in their ministry in a variety of ways that we're going to see. And for all their differences, they had a common goal with common values, common aspirations that they were able to work together for. And that's what we have in Christ. We get to be partners. We get to use our years to invest in something of eternal significance. We get to co-labor together to bring souls into an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What a privilege. What a joy. How grateful we should be. And Paul is. And he was grateful from God, or grateful to God, because God is the one who introduced this work and the God who would perfect this work. Because ultimately, any progress in the gospel is by God. God is the one who directed Paul and Timothy, Luke and Silas to Philippi. They wanted to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit directed them to Philippi. 
God was the one that opened Lydia's hearts to receive the gospel. God was the one who freed the possessed slave girl of the demon and of her oppressive masters who were extorting her. God was the one that opened the Roman jailer's heart to be able to receive the gospel. God was the one who had protected and developed the gospel in them. God was the one who had done that work. God was the one who was doing that work. And God is the one who would most certainly complete that work. Because as we are partners of the gospel, it doesn't depend on us, thank God. Now, when we were involved at Campus Crusade for Christ in college, this is how they defined evangelism for us. Successful evangelism is being faithful to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. We couldn't be articulate enough to woo someone to Christ. Our apologetics couldn't be persuasive enough to lead someone to Christ. We couldn't be compelling enough, convicting enough, godly enough. It was all God. So what was our part? To be faithful to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and to leave the results to God because God is the one who begins the good work. God is the one who progresses the work. God is the one who perfects the work. It's all God. And therefore, all the glory and all the praise and all the honor go to Him, which is such a relief to us. It's not up to us, but we get to play a part. And that's the privilege that gospel partnership allows us. Paul then goes on to say that he's not just joyful for them and thankful for them, but he feels this affection for them. It is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. He's in Rome, they're in Philippi, they're hundreds of miles away, but they're dear to him as he's dear to them. Because in his imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, his defense of the gospel in prison, the trial that he was expecting, they were partakers of grace with him. They had experienced the grace of the gospel. He was experiencing the grace of the gospel. And that united their hearts, however distant they were and however different they were. And then he says, and I'm not just giving niceties. I'm not just being polite. God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus loves for you and feels a deep affection for you, and that's the affection that I feel for you in Christ. And again, even though we've been separated, even though we differ in all these various categories of our life, you're in my heart as I'm in yours. And I feel affection for you as you feel affection for me, because that is what the gospel does to unite us. So this last week, there was the fourth conference uh, of a ministry called Antisupalabra, which is Spanish for at your word. And it comes from Isaiah 66, verse two, that God honors those who tremble at his word. It's a way of communicating an esteem and a reverence for God's word. And the goal of the ministry is to foster healthy churches in the Spanish speaking world by fostering reverence for God's word in the pulpit and in the pew in Spanish speaking churches. And so I got to spend the week with people that I met. There was a new the board member from Argentina. There was a new board member from Gaithersburg, Maryland, but he's from Puerto Rico, ultimately. And there were people that I had not met until Tuesday. And there was an instantaneous bond. There was an immediate affection. There was this connection that was so close, so intimate, so warm, because we were already tied together in Jesus Christ. I felt an affection for them. They feel an affection for me. Now they've gone back. One has gone down to the south of Argentina in Patagonia. The other is now blizzarded under in Maryland. 
and the other partners in this gospel from the Dominican Republic, from Chile, from Mexico, from all over the Spanish-speaking world, we love one another. And we were bound together immediately. And there was this harmony, this connection because of our identity in Christ that unites us as partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have that as Christians. We're very different. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different races. Some of us speak different languages. Some are richer, some are poor, some are more or less educated. But in Christ, we're connected to one another. We get to love one another and partner with one another for the sake of the gospel. And now Paul does something that he only does in two of his letters. In all of Paul's letters, he greets them. And in all but one letter, Galatians, he's thankful to God for them. But this is only one of two letters, the other being Colossae, where Paul offers an actual prayer for them. That his thanksgiving moves into a prayer for them. And so in verses 9 through 11, Paul gives a prayer for them that reminds us of our aspirations as Christians. Paul says, and this I pray. So he had said earlier that he prayed for them. He remembered them, was thankful for them in his prayers. Now we find out the content of his prayers. And he gives two specific contents with two specific purposes. Paul prays that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. The purpose being so that they would approve the things that are excellent. And the second thing he prays is that they be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. And the reason he plays this is that God would be glorified and God would be praised. So let's look at Paul's first prayer request for the Philippians. That their love would abound still more and more. Because love is the principal Christian virtue. Jesus said that the old Mosaic covenant is summarized in loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. And then when he gave the new covenant, he established a new commandment that his disciples are to love one another as he loved them. Because love for God, love for neighbors, and love for other disciples of Jesus summarize the old and new commandments, the old and new testaments, the old and new covenants. Of all things, we are to love and to always be abounding in love. That our prayer for one another, our aspiration for ourselves is this day, this week, this month, this year, that I'll love God with more of my heart, more of my mind, more of my soul, and more of my strength because I can never love Him enough. And likewise, that I'll love more of my neighbors, more like myself, and that I'll love other Christians more like Jesus loves me, just as unconditionally, just as indiscriminately, just as selflessly, just as humbly, just as sacrificially. And we're always aspiring to stir one another up, to love more and more and more, because that's what a Christian is. Because God is love, His children love. Uh, David announced our new sign. And if you come up, you can see the Willowwood Church of the Nazarene on front, and then on the underneath, Dina Community Church. But on the back of the sign, as you follow the uh, driveway around the church, this is what you're going to see. Love God, love one another, and love others because these are the three great love commandments of the Old and New Covenant. That's why we studied them this fall in that book, The Three Great Love Commandments. And the goal is that every time we exit the church, we're reminded to go forth now and love God more, to love one another more, to love our neighbors more, 
that our love would abound and abound still more and more because this is what we pray for one another because this is what we aspire to as the children of the God who is love. But that love can't just be a syrupy sentimentality. So Paul now prays also that they grow in knowledge and discernment because you have to know what God's will is in order to be able to love someone rightly. Um, a couple years ago, I was called by someone whose car had been impounded and they said, hey, would you please give me some cash so that I can get my car out of the pound because I need these things. But I knew this individual had been arrested several times for driving under the influence. And I said, in all love, I can't help you with your car because you've shown time and again, and even recently, that if you get behind the wheel, you're likely to be inebriated and that's gonna be a danger to yourself and to others and I won't help you with your car. And that was not unloving. That wasn't because I was a stooge, a Scrooge. That was because I loved her enough not to help her harm herself or anyone else. And I had to have the knowledge of God's will, of her situation to love wisely. Because that's what the word discernment means. That it takes discernment to know how to apply God's word and God's will to that individual in their circumstances to know what love looks like. Because love doesn't mean always giving the other person what they want. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to say, no, I'm not going to bail you out this time. Because if you'll experience the consequences of your actions, if you reap a little bit of what you sow, maybe you'll quit sowing that. I can't just let our children do whatever they want because then they would do the things that are harmful to them. So we as parents have to know when love requires me to say no versus when it allows us to say yes. So for us to love, we have to have a knowledge of God's word. We have to have the wisdom to apply it in a particular situa situation with a particular person. And so we must grow in knowledge and we must grow in discernment. And then we'll be able to approve the things that are excellent. Then we'll be able to recognize the good from the better from the best. Then we'll be able to desire and to counsel and to help people get what's actually best for them. Because obeying God's will is always what's best for a person. And when someone comes to us and says, I th I'm thinking about leaving my spouse because they're not making me happy and I know God wants me happy. And we're able to say to them, that's not what God wants for you. God wants you to be faithful to your vows and remain with your spouse, and that's what's best for you. That's what's excellent, even if it's hard. And by knowledge and discernment, we're able to approve for ourselves and others the things that are best for ourselves and for other Christians and to help them do that. The second part of Paul's prayer is that they be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Sincerity has the idea of unmixed motives of purity, of things that aren't tainted with hypocrisy, that aren't tainted with mixed motives. That Paul prays that as you are aspiring to do these excellent things, that we do it with a right heart, that we do it with right motives. And then secondly, that we actually do the right things so that we are without blame, that we haven't caused offense, that we haven't caused someone to stumble, that we haven't caused a guilty conscience. So that at the day of Christ Jesus, we will be found on that judgment day, pure, sincere, blameless, not blameworthy. In fact, Paul says, really what I'm wanting 
is that as God works in you to perfect what he has begun in you, that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. The image is that of a grove of fruit trees that are heavy laden with fruit. That as Paul writes to a congregation of individual trees that are together as a group, what he wants for them is to grow more and more righteous through Jesus Christ. That having been declared righteous by God in Christ, he now wants them to imitate Christ by growing in righteousness so that we help each other become more loving, more gentle, more joyful, more faithful, more good, more gentle-hearted, more selfless, more self-controlled, because those are the fruits of the Spirit. And that as we do this, individually and together, all the glory and all the praise go to God because He's the one who planted that seed in our hearts. He's the one that grew those saplings into fruit trees. He's the one that produced those fruits, that raised those trees, that protected them, so that as we together bear abundant fruit of righteousness for God, people praise Him, not us. People thank Him, not us. Because ultimately all things are to the glory and the honor and the praise of God alone. So look what Paul has done, even just in introducing this letter. He has reminded us of our identities in Christ. That we belong to Jesus and we exist to serve Him that we have been called, set aside by a holy God for a holy purpose. We are saints, and that should encourage us to live that way. That we are members of local churches. That it wasn't this and that Philippian Christian, it was the Philippian church that Paul wrote to, because we are intended to live our Christian lives in the context of a local church community. That we are recipients of God's grace, His unmerited favor, His unconditional blessing, that puts us at peace with God and with one another so that we can flourish and thrive the way that God intends us to do. That we are sons and daughters of God and we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, following Him until He comes for us. Paul's thanksgiving reminds us of our partnership in the gospel. This participation in the gospel produces joy, thanksgiving, and prayer as we support one another, encourage one another, and contribute to one another's ministries that we partner in the gospel because God began a good work that he is perfecting in us until the day that Christ comes for us. And that partakers of grace have a heartfelt affection for one another. We're not just here because we have ulterior motives or a common goal. We love one another because God allows us to do this eternally significant work together in proclaiming and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Paul identified Ten aspects of our aspirations of Christians. Ten, ten things that we can pray for one another and help one another grow in. That we're always abounding in love more and more. Because we can never love God, one another, and others enough. That we grow in real knowledge. That we grow in the knowledge of God's word so that we know his will and his character. That with that we're growing in discernment and wisdom of how to apply it in particular situations with particular people so that we can approve the things that are excellent and seek and desire and encourage and aspire to those. And that we do so with sincerity, without hypocrisy and mixed motives, that we live blamelessly, that we bear righteous fruit individually and together as we depend on Christ to the glory of God 
and to the praise and the thanks of the one who does such wondrous works in us. This is the Christian life. This is the opportunity that we have in Christ together. Now let's pray for God to begin to do this work in us even this day and week. So Father, again, we thank you for your inspired word that you can take a piece of correspondence, a particular letter, and make it applicable to all people in all times and circumstances. That you can take the salutation of that letter, the boilerplate, and make it something that reminds us of how we should view ourselves, how we should view one another, and how we should help one another grow and live in Christ. Father, would you help these things be true in us? Would you make us abound in love? Would you make us grow in sincerity? Would you help us walk blamelessly? Would we approve the things that are excellent? Would you produce in us much righteous fruit so that you would be praised, glorified, and honored, and so that others would desire to come to know you through Jesus Christ who does all these things in and through us? And we ask this in his name. Amen.